Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Anybody ever face an obstacle in life? <laughs> no, right? No. There are obstacles that get in your way, right? We, we face obstacles in life. I think all of us could identify with that. It could probably, we took some time and thought, oh, we probably think, yeah, here, here's a, here was or here is a big obstacle. Obstacles, we all face them, whether it's someone trying to move up in their career, an athlete trying to reach the next level of performance, or a husband and wife trying to improve their relationship. Obstacles come in all shapes and sizes. But did you ever think about the obstacles to following Jesus? There are people in the world who will never follow Jesus because the cost is too high. They have too much, or they're afraid they're going to lose too much, or or whatever the reason is. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. As we continue in our series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero, a study in the book of Mark, we come today to chapter 3. As Pastor Clay is going to point out, there are two glaring obstacles seen in chapter 3 that keep people from following Jesus. A hard heart won't let truth in. A material mind won't let truth win. As you'll hear Pastor Clay say in today's message, they are the two biggest obstacles there are when it comes to following Jesus. Now here's Pastor Clay. Hey, do you guys ever, um, well I know you have, but you face obstacles in life. Anybody ever face an obstacle in life? (laughs) No, right? No. I mean, and, and it could be, you know, maybe it's a, at work, you're trying to move up and, and maybe it's a degree that's keeping you from getting there, or maybe it's a, a person that's keeping you from getting there, or maybe it's, you know, or, or maybe it's uh, some uh, talent or ability or athletic skill, you're trying to reach a certain level, but, but there are obstacles that get in your way, right? We, we face obstacles in life, I think all of us could identify with that. It could probably, if we took some time and thought, we'd probably think, yeah, here, here's a, here was or here is a big obstacle in my life. We have obstacles to life. There's no question about that. Uh, some of you know this, that I, I, have, uh, I have written a book, and, uh, and I'm trying to get that book uh, published. And, I, and I've not, uh, not had any success doing that. Uh, and my ego will not let me attribute it to the fact that it may not be good. I'm convinced that the book is, you know, perhaps the greatest piece of literature and the history of the English language. <laughs> anyway, so, so I, I faced obstacles to trying to get this, this book published. And, and so I've been trying to find a publisher who published my book, uh, but, but publishers apparently just simply, as best I can tell, no publisher accepts uns- what they would refer to as unsolicited manuscripts anymore. They will not accept an unsolicited manuscript. You must go through a literary agent. You must have a literary agent. And I kind of understand that. The literary agent then kind of weeds through, you know, and says, this is garbage. This is a waste of time. This is, you know. So I understand uh, why the literary agent. So I've been trying to find a literary agent. And, and so a few months ago, I sent off a package that, that took months to get ready. Deborah Martin, who has background in editing and all that kind of stuff was a big help to me and getting this package ready. And they want all, I mean, they want a lot of stuff. You just can't send them sample chapters, but they, they want, I mean, just pages of stuff. So uh, never heard anything from that one. And uh, so this past week, I, uh, I sent off another one. I spent all day Monday getting a, this package ready. Uh, and it's just pages of stuff. You know, they always want three sample chapters, your first three chapters, but then they want this, you know, annotated table of contents. They want a synopsis of the book. They want to know uh, your educational and experiential background. They want to know why you wrote the book. They were, I mean, it's just pages and pages of stuff. So I spent uh, all day Monday working on, the, on this because, 
while there's some similarities to the other packets, they see all literary agents seem to go out of their way to want something different or some different way than the other guy. So uh, got this package ready and uh, sent it off uh, late Monday night, actually uh, early Tuesday morning. And I was shocked when I got up Tuesday morning and checked my email to find that I had already gotten a response from this guy. Yeah. Deborah said, yeah. Yeah, not really. <laughs> but no, I mean, I really, I, I was pleasantly surprised that here's a guy that has at least responded. And I, want to, I wanted to read y'all uh, at least part of the email in his response because um, I hate it. Um, he says, listen, listen to what he says. Uh, and th- I mean, this first thing, the next, next morning, says, uh, Tuesday morning, he says, Clay, I appreciate you contacting me. While your credentials are impeccable <laughs> and your topic a good one, you do not yet have a national platform. Now, listen to what he says. You do not yet have a national platform. Name recognition all across the U.S. Listen to this. Which today is a requirement for anyone writing in the field of Christian living. And here's this, it was the next statement that just killed, it killed my heart, really. Not, not about my book, but it's just this statement. Platform, in other words, who you know or how well you're known or, or how well you're able to... Platform trumps content in today's publishing world. And I thought, how sad is that? That... <laughs> I, I don't even know... I, so, so this is an obstacle in my life. This is an obstacle in my life. And, uh, and, I, and I replied, I was, very, I was very appreciative of the guy responding. Wait, he went on and put a few other things. Um, but, uh, but I know it's not an obstacle for God. God. God works and God moves and God does his things. But, but it is an obstacle at this point in my life because I have this thing and I feel like it could do some good and I want people to read it and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so it's an obstacle to my life. And like I said, I suspect if we went around the room, almost everybody could think of, well, this is an obstacle that I'm dealing with right now. And it might be physical. It might be spiritual. It might be emotional. It might be family-related. It might be work-related. It might be, but it's just, it's just part of it. But have you ever stopped to think about uh, the obstacles to following Jesus? Have you ever stopped to think about what are obstacles that people face when it comes to actually following Jesus? I want to share with you this morning, as we continue to work through this series in the book of Mark, uh, because I believe this is what, what the book of Mark brings out, this chapter, Mark chapter 3, what I believe, uh, and some people might argue, but, but I would believe that these are the two greatest obstacles to people following Jesus. And, and I hope this is a help to you, uh, because number one, if you're here and you're, not, you're still debating the whole Jesus thing, then, then maybe you can see some obstacle, some of this even in yourself. But probably every one of us in here know people, have loved ones, have friends, have neighbors, that you probably can identify with these obstacles. So I hope that they help you this morning. Uh, uh, two, what I believe are the two greatest obstacles to people following Jesus. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 or open up your, uh, your electronic version. You can also see it up on the screen. And because of the, uh, what we're going to attempt to do is cover all of the third chapter uh, here today, uh, except you, you'll notice there'll be, there's one portion that I will not read and won't cover, uh, which it's, it's where, it's one of the places where the, the original 12 disciples are named. And, and so it's just a listing of those disciples and, and Jesus calling, a, you know, the, the listing of his calling of them. So, uh, but two obstacles. We're going we're gonna to read the first, deal with the first obstacle, and then we're going to read the text and just kind of read as we go this morning because of the amount of text to cover. The first obstacle, I believe, 
to people following Jesus or a person following Jesus is this, a hard heart. A hard heart, ladies and gentlemen, won't let the truth in. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, right now verses 1 through 6. And remember, John, uh, Mark is just moving from one action event to the next action event in, in, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so, 3 is transitioning into another one of these action events. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him. Yeah, if you've been to us in the series, you probably know who they are by now, right? The religious bunch. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. There it is again. That Sabbath problem. So that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, to the religious leaders, Jesus said to the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. A hard heart, this hardness of heart. John, in Mark chapter 3, I keep saying John, in Mark chapter 3, another encounter between Jesus and these religious leaders. Jesus is traveling around. He's, he's going in the synagogue. Synagogue, remember again, was kind of, you can think of it as like a, a local church for Jewish people. It's where teaching went on and, and that sort of thing. It wasn't the temple. There was only one temple and that was in Jerusalem. These were synagogues and they were scattered throughout the land of Israel. And Jesus was going, he was, he was predominantly working up in the northern part of Israel in the Galilean region at this point. But he goes down south uh, from time to time as well. But he's going from from. Uh, town to town, city to city, and he usually goes in the synagogue, and he goes and he, and he teaches, and uh, the people are coming around him, and all kinds of things are happening, and as verse 2 makes clear, as Jesus is going around all over the place, the religious leaders are going around all over the place, following him, as the text makes clear, looking for an opportunity to accuse him, looking for an opportunity to nail him about something that he was doing that they didn't like. You know, you, you think these guys, and I know I've said this, but you think these guys would be excited about this. You know, I think they'd be, be excited about the, the good that Jesus was doing. Because he was. He was, he was doing some tremendous good. But you see, this, this is the problem, ladies and gentlemen. And, and some of you probably know people like this. But, but, but when your heart is hard, you, you can't see that. You can't see the good that has happened. You can't see uh, what, what's going on in the situation. It's just, you're just, you're just blind to it. And, of course, uh, let's be honest, uh, Jesus never wanted to back away from a fight. And so the text tells us that, that he specifically calls the, withered, the man with the withered hand, it was crippled, whatever was wrong with his hand, Jesus specifically points him out and he says, come here. And the man comes up to Jesus and Jesus, I mean, you can see the guy standing here or sitting, whatever the case is, and he turns and he looks at that group. <laughs> that group. Steve Pierce, you ever have one of them groups in your church? <laughs> They're just, they're just there, you know, and you know they're not out for any good at all. And they're there, and, uh, and Jesus says, tell me, is it good to 
to, to he, well, let me read it specifically, let me, so, I don't, so I don't mix it up. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Which is, is it? Should you do good on the Sabbath or, or should you do harm on the Sabbath? Now, now, now listen, here, here, here's a question for all of us, right? Does Jesus have the power to heal this man? If he does not heal the man when he has his opportunities here, I realize Jesus was in human flesh and he couldn't cover every person, and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he's there. If he can't heal this person and he doesn't heal this person, would that be harm? I think it would be. Don't worry, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to... I think, I think it, he's got the power to do this, right? That, that's like you, you, you or I having the, the, the cure for cancer and, and just saying, well, I'll hold on to this myself in case I need it at some point, you know? No, that... Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. See, it's, it's amazing to me. Even in the question, you can, you can hear. Jesus is trying. He's trying to get these guys. Guys, listen, look. I, I, I'm trying to teach you what the intent of the law was. It's this whole Sabbath thing you keep getting hung up on. I keep trying to tell you what God's intent was in the first place. But... That's what a hard heart does. It just won't see. And so beginning in verse 5, you get this glimpse of the righteous anger of God. And it's okay to talk about anger in the same sentence as with God. The righteous anger of God that is either mixed with or birthed out of grief. In other words, their hard heart broke the heart of Jesus. He wants them to under, I really believe Jesus is trying to break through these. I really believe that he wants them to get this and wants them to understand. But their hard heart will not, will not let it happen. And so Jesus grieving and angry at their response or lack of response. I think at least part of the anger and part of the grief is birthed out of the fact that these guys should have known better. If anybody knew better, these guys should have known better. These were the guys that had access to the word of God. It was just the Old Testament then, but they had access. They were the ones that had daily access to the word of God. These were the guys that had grown up being taught the scriptures. These were the guys that, if you will, were the educated group. These were the guys that should have known better. And they sat there and just kept silent. And, and I think part of the grief and part of the anger that Jesus must have felt is also based on the fact that these guys were not only condemning themselves to hell and eternal separation from God. They were dragging as many people with them as they could. They were leading people down a path of of pride and self-reliance instead of depending on the mercy of God. And it, it broke his heart and it grieved him and it angered him that they would do this kind of thing. That's what a hard heart will do to you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, let's let's pick up the story. We're gonna jump all the way down to verse uh, 20 and read to verse 30. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they, uh, they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of, take custody of him. His own people is referring to his family. His, and we're going to find this out a little farther down. His mother and his brothers. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, meaning this is what they were hearing. They were saying, oh, it's, it's crazy. He's lost his senses. We don't know what's going on, all this Kind of stuff. They're hearing all kinds of stuff. And the scribes, here we go, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Jesus calls the religious leaders over to him. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is, is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. Verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Uh, Jesus goes back home, probably means to Peter's house in Capernaum. That historically, most people believe that was kind of the base of operation for Jesus. And he goes down there and, you know, the the people are just, you know, they're all around him. They're all over him. They're all this kind of stuff. And once again, here are the religious leaders. They're, they're down there. And it's clear that the, uh, the antagonism between Jesus and the religious leaders is escalating. Because they're no longer uh, asking him questions about why he's doing what he's doing. They're no longer even accusing him of, of breaking the law. Now they are out and out. Basically saying he's the devil. He's demon-possessed. He casts out demons by the, by the power of the one who rules the demons. And Jesus, uh, this is a paraphrase, okay? But Jesus is like, really guys? That's all you got? I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan. That doesn't even make sense. That, 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 guys, that, that doesn't even... That doesn't even make sense. And Jesus, I believe, makes one final attempt to try and break through uh, to these guys. To help them understand who he really is and what he has really come to do. And he, he says it, I believe it's based on, he, t- he gives them this, this parable. And it's based on, I believe, something that they said in verse 22. Of all, all the stuff that they're saying, but they specifically use a name in verse 22. They specifically refer to him as, or, or work under the power of Beelzebub. Because, they, uh, because he is possessed by Beelzebub. They specifically use that name. Now, Beelzebub uh, was a name that the Jews had given to Satan. Uh, the origin of it is a little debated and unclear exactly how they arrived at that, and there's some different ideas about it. But the name itself apparently means uh, master or even lord of the dwelling or master of the house. And so what Jesus is saying to these religious guys, as he makes this final attempt, even after what they've said to him, what they've accused him of, all that kind of stuff, he makes this final attempt to say, guys, listen, Satan's not going to let somebody come in to his territory and, and, and destroy his territory, take over his territory. He's not, he's not just going to let that happen. That's, that's the analogy in verse, I think, 27 with the strong man, the master of the, of the dwelling place. Do you, guys, do you think Satan is just going to let somebody come into his, his territory and just, just take over? And listen, folks, that's what Jesus was doing. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is kicking butt and taking names. <laughs> and... And I can't help it. If Jesus were to borrow a line from, uh, from Al Pacino's character in Scent of a Woman, I'm just getting warmed up. I mean, he's just starting. 
He's going to do many more miracles. He's going to do much more good. He's going he's to cast out far more demons. Greatest miracle of all. He's going to lay down his life, pay for the sin debt of all of mankind, destroy the chains of death and hell for all time, and, and, and take away Satan's power once and for all. And, and Jesus said, do you think Satan is just gonna, would just let that happen? The only way that would happen is if someone stronger than the strong man came in, bound him, and then took it. And that's what I'm doing, guys. That's what I'm doing. But a hard heart won't let you see it. It, it, just, it, it just doesn't, sometimes it almost doesn't even matter. I remember uh, the, the, the pastor that Cindy and I grew up under, when we came to the Lord, we were grown adults, we were in our 20s, but when we came to the Lord, Pastor Webb, he used to tell this story. And I was thinking about it. I hadn't thought about the story in years, but I was thinking about it when I was working on this sermon. Pastor Whipple used to tell this story about uh, when he was a young man in ministry. He was just starting out. Pastor Whipple is uh, in his 90s now. But when he was a young man just starting out in ministry, he was preaching at a church one time. And uh, after the service, an elderly man came up to him. And, and the elderly man shook his hand, and then he said this to him. He says, he says well, uh, you young preachers sure can't preach it like they, like they could in the old days. And Pastor Whipple asked him, he said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, well, when I was a young man, he said, when the sermon was, was preached and when the invitation was given at the end of the service, he said, man, it was all I could do to keep from moving forward. My, my hands were sweating. I was holding on to the back of that pew as hard as I could for dear life. And he said, but now that sermon doesn't even bother me. See, do you understand what happened? The preaching hadn't gotten softer. His heart had gotten harder. He wouldn't hear the truth anymore. A hard heart will keep somebody from acknowledging that God is God and I am not. A hard heart will keep a person from bending their knee to the true God and saying, you are creator of your universe and I am not. I am a sinner in need of a savior and, and I repent of my sin. A hard heart won't let a person do that. That's why I've also, I've said this, um, I, I know Travis, my son has heard me say this, my wife's heard me say this a million times. A person who, who professes to be an atheist, a, a disbelief in, in the uh, existence of God. The problem that they have it doesn't start up here, it starts here. Now listen, I'm, there, there are people that genuinely have questions. There are people that genuinely have been influenced by a culture that I believe is influenced by satanic uh, uh, attempt to convince the world that, that God does not exist and, and all that sort of thing. So there are people that generally have answers and we should, as the Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give every man an answer of the hope that is in us. We should be ready to give a defense of why we believe what we believe. But listen, this is my personal experience. Sometimes it doesn't matter how evident the truth is. If your heart is hard, if it's hard here, it doesn't matter what, it, do, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. And the, so the danger of the heart being hard and, and how that can blind us to truth. I, I'm just, as a guy that I, I consider myself a fairly intelligent guy, a guy that, that's read some and tried to study and tried to look at different arguments and different ways and all that kind of stuff. I'm just telling you, I have, I have come to the conclusion that the evidence for the existence of God, the empirical, historical evidence for the existence of God is so obvious from the standpoint of it's so obvious that that it's exactly why the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 that nobody has an excuse for not believing that God is nobody has an excuse because it is so evident and so obvious I realize there's been distortion I realize you know all that kind of stuff but it's the danger of the hard heart so 
Well, here's, here's, here's the thing. What, what should we do about it? If you're, if you're here, I, I, have, I have family members. I have two sons that have hard hearts. What, 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 what can we do? What do we do for those people that just don't... Listen, here's a couple of ideas. First, I think that we, we should pray for them. We can pray for them. We need to pray for those people that we know who have a hard heart. Now, I, I grant to you, prayer is such a mysterious thing. There's so much I do not understand about prayer. I, I really... And the more I pray the less I feel like I understand about it at times, uh, but the more I know that I need to pray. And I am firmly of the belief that prayer is essential to changing the heart of a person that is hard towards the things of God. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that one of the books I'm reading right now is uh, A.W. Tozer's The Set of the Sale. And I was reading a section having to do with prayer, and I was just really uh, moved by this, this statement that Tozer made about prayer. And here's what he says. He says, while it is not always possible to trace an act of God to its prayer cause, in other words, uh, some, some, some believer in China that leads another believer to China may not know that, that, that his uh, church back home was praying for him. Or so. it, we may not always know the cause, how the prayer arrives, or that sort of thing. It is yet safe to say, Tozer said this, it is yet safe to say that prayer is back of everything that God does for the sons of men here upon earth. Man, I, I really stopped and thought about that for a while. Because I'm telling you, if he is right, and, and I... I'm pretty sure he is. Prayer is back of everything that God does for the sons of men here upon earth. He goes on to say, an invitation, I love this, an invitation to prayer is therefore an invitation to omnipotence. Omnipotence means, means all power. An invitation to prayer is an invitation, uh, is therefore an invitation to omnipotence. For prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. Nothing is impossible to the man who prays in faith, just as nothing is impossible with God. And then Tozer said, and Tozer, this was many years ago, folks, Tozer died in 63. He says, this generation has yet to prove all that prayer can do for believing men and women. We, we've got to pray. We've got to pray all the more earnestly for those people, because some of y'all have, y'all have some people that y'all say, God can't reach them. They, they won't be reached. Their heart is too hard. We've got to pray for them. Here's the second idea. Uh, not, only, not only pray for them, but we need to love those people that we know who have a hard heart. Oh, and man, this is not easy. To love those people that we know who have a hard heart. In other words, in essence, what we have to do is be Jesus to them. Now, does that mean we don't give them the truth? Oh, I don't want to hurt them. So it, no, it doesn't, obviously doesn't mean that. We speak truth, but do you know there's a way to speak truth in a loving manner? There's a way to speak truth into people's lives, but do it in a way that's loving. We, we have to love them. We have to, we have to look for opportunities to bless them. We have to look for ways uh, to, to be used by God to demonstrate his love to them. We've got to love people that we know have a hard heart. Because I, I, I believe this. You never argue a person into the kingdom of God. You can only love them into the kingdom of God. I really believe that. So family member or friend or coworker or whatever it is, the best counsel I can give you is you've got to love that person. You, you just got to wear yourself out loving them. And it's hard. It's hard. And, and then the third uh, idea I would say, we need to show those people that we know who have a hard heart. In other words, we need to show them, listen to me, I cannot stress how important this is. We have to show them the reality of God in our lives, right? Because we're arguing. God is real. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God died for you. Oh, really? Well, what does your life look like? Listen, can I? Okay, all right. Get, if I'm stressed out, if I'm anxious, if I struggle with anger, if I am unforgiving to those who have hurt me, if I'm unkind to those that are unkind to me, if, if, I, if I struggle with, uh, with, with 
being a person that, that, that lives in the reality of the peace of God. You understand what I'm saying? That's how they look at it. Don't, don't tell me your God is real. Show me your God is real. You, I, I, don't, I don't think your life, I, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid people have been able to say this to us at times before. I, don't, I look at your life and I don't see any difference in your life from my life. So why should I believe your God? We've got to show them. Now, that, that puts a, an impetus on us to say, you know what, I've got, I got to walk in the Spirit. I've got to let the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, be manifested in my life. What is it? What's, what's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all these attributes that, that if the Spirit of God is producing those in my life, I, I don't know of a single person that wouldn't want that in their life. Maybe there are, but I'm, I'm just saying that's we've got to show them. We got to show. All right. Let me let me try and cover this second idea. I know I need to move on, but the heart of a person, the hardness of a heart is something. And so I challenge you, if you're here today, check your own heart. Just monitor. Say, man, if I allowed my heart to interfere with even what what is revealed to me or what I see around me and that sort of thing. And then then we can take those three steps towards helping others that we know to have a hard heart. The second obstacle I believe second greatest obstacle to keeping people from following Jesus is, is this, a material mind. A hard heart won't let truth in. A material mind won't let truth win. Let me, let me read verses 7 through 12, and then I'll explain a little bit. Uh, Jesus withdrew to the uh, sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And a, and a great number of people uh, heard of all that he was doing. And uh, I'm sorry, it just, it, I just, it just dawned on me. I, I didn't deal with the text on the unpardonable sin, did I? That's kind of an important one too, isn't it? All right, all right. Can I back up a little bit? All right, and then I'll, I'll read this. Because <laughs> I really did. It really is important. You might notice in verse 28, I think it is, that um, kind of a, a, there's a change of tone. Let me put it that way. There, I think you might pick up there's a change of tone in Jesus' attitude toward the religious leaders after this last thing. After, you know, which, is, is, which should I do on the Sabbath? And they just sat there and just remained silent. And as soon as he healed the guy, they ran out and said, we got, we got to get rid of this guy. He's doing too much good. <laughs> and so in, in the beginning... I think it is in verse 28. He says, uh, truly, I say to you. Um, the Aramaic term is amen. We, we say amen. It means truly. A lot of times in Scripture you'll find where Jesus says, would have said amen, amen, truly, truly. It's as if Jesus is saying, guys, I, I, have, I have talked to you. I've reached out to you. I've tried to reason with you. And I'm telling you right now, you better hear what I'm saying. God will forgive any sin that a person commits. Hey, by the way, according to Matthew 12, 32, Jesus specifically says, even blasphemy against the Son of God. But, verse 29, Mark chapter 3, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, the natural question is, I know I'm, I'm going to sure run out of time here. The natural question is, what makes sin against the Holy Spirit unforgivable, right? Isn't that your question on your mind? Why that one? 
Oh, other places, Jesus talks about, you know, sin, you sin, you blaspheme against God, you know, I can be forgiven. You blaspheme against uh, the Son of God, I can be forgiven. But anyone that sins against the Holy Spirit has committed a, uh, an eternal sin. What makes that sin unforgivable? I, not everybody may agree with me on this, but I think the answer is a pretty simple one. Um, and it deals with, it has something to do with what Jesus said, or what it says in verse 30. Verse 30, it says, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In other words, what, what the religious leaders were saying was that Jesus was doing what he was doing by the power of Satan. So, by consequence, they were denying the power of the spirit of God. Do you understand? They, they were saying, oh, well, everything he does is because of, of Satan. So they're denying the power of the Spirit of God. Here's what makes the sin unforgivable. If you will not acknowledge the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and the work that he does, you can't be saved. Because he is, he is the way that you are saved. It is through his work in your life that you are saved. And so if you, if you deny him, if you reject him, if you blaspheme him, however you want to say it, let, let me try, and I, I wrote this, I did put this in there. I'm going to show it to you real quick. I hesitated to do this when I was writing the sermon. I hesitated to do this because I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Uh, I'm, I want to break down the separate parts of, of salvation, how the different parts of the Godhead are working in salvation. I hesitate to do this because whew, God is God. He is three distinct persons or personalities, but he is not three different gods. What God... God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do, they do in perfect unity and perfect harmony, okay? But, but for clarification's sake, let's kind of break it down like this, try and show it. God the Father is the one who announced the way for sins to be forgiven. In other words, the Father is the one announced, declared, decreed, however you want to say it, but he's the one that said your sin will require an absolutely perfect sacrifice, because of ser- the seriousness of sin and because of my holiness, nothing short of a perfect sacrifice would do. God declared that. Uh, really, all the way back in the, in the garden. God the Son is the one who acquired forgiveness by being the perfect sacrifice. The Son laid down His life. He, redeemed, he made it possible for us to be redeemed. He was the, the big $5 word. He was the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Watch this. God the Spirit is the one who gives us access to forgiveness of sins. He is the one who comes and convicts us of sin, isn't he? He is the one who draws us to God. He is the one that convinces us that we need Jesus in our life. And so if a person says, ah, I don't, uh, the Holy Spirit, blah, 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 whatever they want to say, they're not allowing God's work to be performed in their life. That's what makes the sin an eternal sin. If you think about it, all sin is eternal sin that's not forgiven, and that sin can't be forgiven because they won't let the Spirit of God work in their life. That's what I think he's saying anyway. Okay, did I, did I, <laughs> I think I covered that as quick as I could. All right, one more real quick. Uh, let's get to the last uh, 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 obstacle to coming to Jesus and then we'll move on. Um, a material mind won't let the truth win. I just read verses 7 through 12. Um, and uh, did I read all seven through? I was reading some of this. Uh, verse 8. And from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so they uh, would not crowd him. Uh, for he had healed many with the result that all of those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You're the son of God! 
And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. The reason for that, by the way, is because Jesus is on a mission. He's, go, he's going to the cross. And, and people have to come to him out of faith. They have to come to him with an understanding of who, of, of who he is because they, who they've seen him and experienced him to be in their life. And, and quite honestly, Jesus doesn't need a demon to, to declare who he is. He's proving, he's showing uh, who he is. But man, I mean, everybody is there, right? Everybody's crowding around. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody's excited about what Jesus is doing. Everybody except the religious leaders, of course. But uh, all the other people that are coming down there to be healed, I mean, they're all excited. And, and who wouldn't be, right? Who wouldn't? If, if, if you were blind, if you were crippled, if you were lame, if, if you couldn't speak, and there was a guy around that could, that could fix that problem, you'd find a way to get to him, wouldn't you? And so would I. There was absolutely nothing wrong with all these people pressing around Jesus and, and wanting Jesus to touch them and wanting Jesus to speak to them and wanting Jesus to heal them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what they were doing. The problem was what they weren't doing for most of them. The problem was for most of them, that's all it was about. It was only about the material. It was only about the physical. It was only about what Jesus could do for me or what, how Jesus could heal me or what Jesus could feed me or what, what miraculous thing I'll get to see Jesus do and be a, get, able to go home and, and tell everybody uh, at the Water Buffalo Lodge what he had done. Or it, it was all about that and not about... Now, listen, not everybody. There were people that got it. There were people that generally understood that, that, that you know, the miracles are great. They, they authenticate it. Uh, his claim to be God. They demonstrated his power. There was nothing wrong with that. But, but there were people that understood that Jesus has come for more than that. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's all of those things. And there were people who genuinely followed him. But the truth is most people did not. And the truth is most people today still do not. Here in Mark chapter 3, man, he, he can't even breathe. There's so many people pressing around him. But you know what? It won't be very long before they'll start bailing on him. In... Uh, in the book of John, uh, in, in what's considered the, the hard teaching, what section is called the hard teachings of Jesus, where Jesus is kind of laying out what it really means to be his disciple, what it really means to follow him. And there's this terribly tragic statement in uh, John chapter 6 and verse 66. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Well, I've always wondered whether that 666 was just a coincidence or not. You know, I don't know. How ironic. From this time, many of his disciples turned back. and Listen, you see what John calls them? Oh, they, they look like followers. Probably smelled like followers. They probably sounded like followers. They're probably going out and telling everybody, man, you got to come see Jesus. But when push came to shove, here's the point. When push came to shove and they realized what it was actually going to cost them to follow Jesus... They turned back. It was too high a cost. And that will keep people from following Jesus. When you begin to dwell on what, what I'm going to lose or what I can't have or, or the material mind, what, the, what, the things I want or that I have to have or that I don't want to lose or that, that, that obsession with the, with the physical keeps people from following Jesus. It really does. Uh, let me show you, um, I think, real quick, a couple passages of Scripture um, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's, that's the point he's making. I, I, didn't, I didn't read it. We're, I, know, I know we're out of time. But uh, in, we pick his family back up in verse uh, 31. His mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they, they sent word to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? You see why some people may have said he lost his mind? 
And looking about at the, watch this, and looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For who, here it is, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see what he, listen, Jesus not, he's not dissing on his family. He loves his family. Yes, they're his physical, uh, earthly family, and he loves them very much, and he cares about them. It's not that he's ignoring them. It's just that Jesus has taken an opportunity to teach an incredibly important truth, and the truth is this. Spiritual trumps physical every single time. It has to, because by definition, physical is, is temporal, and spiritual is eternal. Spiritual is forever. And so Jesus said, you want, you want to know what really, you want to know who really the family of God is? It's the people who actually do what I call them to do. And I was reading that, I was thinking, I, my mind was just racing. I was just, far more than I, than, I, than I wanted it to. Far too many examples I can think of people that profess to be followers of Jesus, but the cost was too high for them to actually follow him, to actually do what he says. It, it, it's those who... Do the will of my Father in heaven. And uh, we'll, we'll get there when we get further on in Mark. But in Mark chapter 10, there's this tragic story. This, Jesus tells this parable about this guy that, that's very wealthy. And he, and he builds all these barns. And he puts all the stuff in his barns. And, and then uh, in Mark chapter 10, uh, it says this. Uh, as Jesus uh, started on his way, a, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, I'm sorry, that's not the text I was thinking of. But let me finish it. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one's good except God. I believe Jesus is testing the guy. He just called me good. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. Um, you, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus says, you know all these. Teacher, he declared, I, I, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I, there's something peculiar about this little phrase, right? Because Jesus, I'm just saying, Jesus loved, I believe Jesus loved the world. But it particularly points out that Jesus looked at this guy, and, he, and I believe what it's saying is it look, he looked at his heart. He looked at this guy's heart, and he loved him. Because he knew this guy generally wanted this. He wanted to know the, what, how this was and what the secret was. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Now listen, don't get hung up on the whole, oh, we got to sell everything that we have to follow Jesus. You have to let go of everything that you have to follow Jesus. You understand? Or you, let me put it this way, you have to hold it very loosely. You have to understand who it ultimately all belongs to. In that context, I believe Jesus said that to that man because, number one, if he was physically going to follow him, then, then he couldn't, wasn't going to be able to keep up with his affairs anyway, so he needed to get rid of it. But number two, he knew that this was this guy's biggest hang-up. Jesus knows that. That's this guy's hang-up. It's the, it's the money. It's the money. It's the material possessions. So Jesus said, get rid of that and follow me. And he went away sad because he had a great many possessions. All right, I'm done. Got to close. Except for this. <laughs> because I, I want to, because listen, here's, when I, was, when, I was, when I was writing the sermon, I was looking and I was reading this text and I was saying, Lord, I get, I get it, man, I know. And I know there are people in the world who will never follow Jesus because the cost is too high. They have too much or they're afraid they're going to lose too much or, or whatever the reason is. I, I know that. I get that. But, but you know what I thought about? You know who I thought about the most? Me. Now, I, I, I genuinely, with all my heart's desire, want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to be a follower of Jesus and trying to obey him and do what he wants me to do. But I know that I struggle with this whole material thing. 
And how much is enough? And what can I have? And, and how much should I give away? And what I do, you know, is just, okay, I guess it's just me. I'm the only one that struggles with that. But that struggle with this idea of, of material and, and how do I... All right, so I got, I got three, three ideas for you real quick. They're not in your outline. You can write them down if you want. Uh, but th- this, just to help, this just helped me. I was, as I was processing it last night and praying through my sermon, I thought of these and I thought, wow, this, this, maybe this will help me if I keep this in mind. First one is this. Um, possess, don't obsess. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, we, we live in a material world and you and I, however it worked out, happen to live in a part of the world that makes us wealthier than about 99% of the rest of the world. Okay, we have possessions, all right? But don't obsess over them. Don't, don't make those possessions the thing that you crave and you desire and that, and that you live for and that you long for. Don't possess, yes, but don't obsess. Uh, look at this text in... Um, John, or Luke chapter 12. Uh, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You've you got to get over that, he's saying. You've got to you just get over that. Possess, don't obsess. Uh, by the way, this is really, th- I'm saying the same thing three different ways, I'm just, but I guess I just needed it last night. Second one, utilize, but don't idolize. Okay, I've got this stuff. I've got nice stuff. I've got, got a nice home. I've got a nice uh, car. I've got a nice you know, whatever, whatever stuff is that, that we have, all right? Utilize that stuff. Use it. Use it for your enjoyment. Use it for the needs that you have. Use it, hopefully, for the advancement of the kingdom of God in any ways that you can. But don't, but don't make it your idol. You understand what I'm saying? Look at this passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. Man, this is, this is hard stuff. This is when some people walked away. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, does that mean that there are no wealthy people that follow God? No, it doesn't mean that. I've known some incredibly wealthy people that were fully devoted followers of Jesus. I can tell you this. Oh, it is the tiniest percentage of people on this earth that you will ever meet. Wealthy people that are also followers of Jesus. Very tiny percentage of the world's population. It doesn't mean that a wealthy person can't follow Jesus, but what he's saying is if, if your wealth is what drives you, if your wealth is what, what you, then, then you will, you'll just find a reason to not. You know what I'm saying? So you'll just find a reason to not do the whole God thing. And then the last one, appreciate, but don't dedicate. Don't dedicate your life to, to having more and getting more and doing more. Appreciate it? Yes, I'm so grateful for all of the stuff that I have, whether it be health, whether it be material possessions, or, uh, whatever it is. But I, I have to be careful to not dedicate my life to, well, how can I get, how can I, how can I grow my uh, 401k uh, a little bit more? Mine's just a four. I don't even have the 01k yet. So how, how can I, how can I, you know, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying we don't prepare. I'm not saying we don't have, a, I'm just saying that those things don't become your life's dedication, your life's work. Because God has called it something far, 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 far greater. Don't get caught up on the obstacles. Closing verse is the theme verse of cross-culture church. Some of you hopefully know it by heart. Uh, in in uh, Luke, Luke chapter 9. Uh, go on, Tyler. Bring up uh, Luke 9. Uh, then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There it is. Later. There's how you overcome those obstacles. You die to yourself. You die to, your, die, die to your wants, your ideas, your, you die to things, the things that don't, I don't, you know, that whole triune Godhead thing, I don't understand how it works, but I, I trust God, I follow him, I give him all that I have. 
And then God takes that and he uses it for his kingdom purposes. We, have, we know people that have obstacles. Maybe you have some obstacles. But they're obstacles that can be overcome if a person will soften their heart and if a person will, will open their mind to what really, really matters in life. Amen? Well, there you have it. The two biggest obstacles to following Jesus are a hard heart and a material mind. Those opposing Jesus should have been able to easily see that he was who he claimed to be, but their hard hearts wouldn't let them believe in him. And as Pastor Clay showed us today, many of the people who seemed to be following Jesus were really only in it for what they could get out of it. Their focus on the material world caused them to miss the value of the spiritual world. It's certainly not wrong to ask the Lord to provide or to display His power in our lives. But if we're really going to follow Him, we have to be willing to lay everything down. As Jesus pointed out, the people who are really part of the family of God are the people who do what He asks of us. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.